how findable is your face? And if you could search for your face online, what kind of pictures would you find? This week on Download This Show, a controversial new search tool allows you to search purely by face. Definitely no issues going to come up with that. Plus, Twitter have just copped a massive fine. Why? Well, it involves your phone number. And if you look around at your life right now, what is there that a robot could help with? Cleaning, taking out the bins, or maybe, just maybe, something more ambitious. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell. And welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And joining us in studio, Associate Editor of Crikey, Cam Wilson. Welcome back. Hi, good to be back. Alongside, and I do mean physically alongside, mm. because after two years of pandemic, we can finally have people together in a room. <laughs> Natasha Gillazo, Product Manager at Flux. Welcome back to Download This Show. So good to be here. So good to be in person. Yeah, and my voice is still up high. That thing, that part <laughs> hasn't changed. All right, first up this week. Horrifying technology that can recognise your face. Um, there's a <laughs> new story that's done the rounds over the last couple of uh, weeks about a paid-for service that you can shove up a picture of a person and it will do what, Cam? It will locate all pictures of your face or whoever's face you put in across the internet. And as someone who did that this morning, there are a crazy amount out there, including a lot actually from download this show. So thanks for that. This is what I'm here. I'm just, I, I'm, I just exist to, uh, to data farm your face. To siphon my face. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyone can do it. There's a, there's a free version of the app that or web app that you can use. Um, and it scours, I think they say like, you know, billions of images that they've sucked into their system across the internet and they will use, you know, their secret source to figure out which of those pictures are actually yours. And and this is a kind of technology which is one-to-many facial recognition, different from the, you know, one-to-one, which is like your phone scans and it's like, this is your face, obviously. It checks all these, these you know, faces it's scanned out there to figure out which of them belong to you. And it is very, very, I mean, it's it's crazy good at picking them up. I'm just going to say uh, you lost me at siphon my face earlier. Everything <laughs> has just been a moment of recovering from that. So it is called Pim Eyes. What it, do, we, do we have a sense of where they're drawing their images from? Is it just publicly available stuff on on you know social media, or, or is it just Google pictures? Like where are this coming from? I think a range of sources. Yeah, it's scraping the images from various websites that the image might have been uploaded to, Google search results definitely, but from like the retrievals that I did, it looked like it had sourced it mostly just from a JPEG or an image that at some point had been uploaded to a website domain. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of apps where you do use your face, but you don't necessarily surrender all of your your information. The obvious one is dating apps, right? Like where, you know, obviously you, you're putting up pictures, but you sometimes until you've progressed in your relationship, you often don't put your full name and things like that. That would be, I guess, the the first concern I had in my head. But for you, Cam, what were the, what were the giant waving red flags for you? <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> I mean, 28 minutes and 27 <laughs> seconds, but you do you. Oh, well, I'll try to keep it uh, short so we can talk about some other things. I mean, the the concerning thing is obviously the fact that like, 
you know, pretty much now we live in a reality where not just any photo that's taken now, but also like a horrifying amount of pictures that have been taken in the past before this technology was even invented or thought possible are now available for anyone to just quickly see. Obviously, you know, you can use it on yourself. That's what I use it on. But you can also use it on, you know, anyone else. And in a New York Times piece about it, you know, there were some crazy stories about people saying they're looking up other people who they, you know, taking the photos from dating apps, even using photos that they took from social media to see if someone had posted any explicit images online. So like trying to track down even potential like revenge porn that had been posted without their permission. It's just like a, it's a crazy violation of privacy and it really feels like the cat's out of the bag and I, I don't really know what you can do about it now. One of the interesting things that came out of the articles I read is that you could pay Pim to not, to, to kind of de-search yourself. Is that right? Yeah, so there's this kind of like situation where like what Cam alluded to where there's this almost like double violation situation that can happen where it's like in the first instance people might have had images uploaded without their knowledge of like more explicit images that were literally not taken without their consent or images that were taken with their consent but not shared online to other forms with their consent. It can surface those, right? So you might use the service discover that material and then it's incumbent on you to pay PIM eyes to suppress that material. Whatever that means, I'm not exactly sure what suppression means, but I think suppression in this case means you can pay PIM eyes to suppress it from it coming up in PIM eyes search, not from other places. You're not paying PIM eyes to actually remove it. So that's pretty disturbing. And there was a software engineer who had had that happen to her and yeah, just very distressing. In How that is that not extortion? Like this is the, like <laughs> that. This is literally a plot line from Goodfellas. This is protection money. Like I don't understand any other way of interpreting that that service. We'll we we will introduce a service to which wherever your face exists online, we will show people. But then we will also give you the tools to suppress. Like I, I, I don't understand how that isn't something like at the very least wildly unethical. Yeah, totally immoral, hopefully illegal. So the service itself does offer a free removal um, ability and it's kind of hidden away. It's not made obvious. And I think that is for those situations where you've got um, photos that you said have been taken without your consent and uploaded online. But that's kind of a minor thing. They do offer that, that paid service. And what that paid service does, I believe, is actually stop your face from coming up in search results so far. So essentially, you're stopping other people from searching it out there. Um, But as you said, these images are still out there. You know, how this works is it's scanned the internet and it's figured out where all these images are. But but even if you get your face blocked through this service, those images are actually still out there on the internet as well, which presents another problem altogether. Yeah, the retrieval aspect is is such an issue because it's like that line between, you know, people's right to know and 75% of employers search candidates online before they hire them. 70% have made a decision not to hire based on something that they found. So people do retrieve information. Don't know if they would use a PIMIS necessarily, but now that they know about it, maybe some employers would add that to their arsenal, if you will. But there's just like this line between the right to know something about someone and the right to be forgotten, whether they're just like old, embarrassing images or or of the more kind of sinister kind that we alluded to before. I guess the thing that sits sort of in the back of my mind is, as we're talking about this is like I know that the more it gets talked about, even if I'm saying negative things about it, the more intrigued I am to use it. Like there's something about this that it, I'd, it's like on the one hand I, I have major ethical issues of it, but at the other end it's it, it's the sort of thing where I think 
if I knew it existed, I'd totally use it to to search people. Yeah, totally. It's like a evil book of magic spells and you're like, oh, but I really want to use it. I do see that like, you know, investigative reporters use it. And in this Times article, they said that, you know, we've got our own ethics policy that it has to go through. But the issue with all these technologies is that, you know, the most ethical people are going to probably set up internal kind of, you know, models to make sure they're not abused. I'm not so much worried about them as I'm worried about everyone else who doesn't care or has never even thought about it, you know. And the fact that this technology is put out there, you know, the guy who owns it now is just like, you know, I think this could be used in really good ways. And I think and I hope that people are only using it for their own face. That kind of like, uh, I guess, optimism, uh, naivete is like, is ridiculous. And I think, you know, that's why we, it's going to get into obvious problems. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Our guest this week, Natasha Gillizzo, product manager with Flux and Cam Wilson from Crikey. And staying in the weird realm of facial recognition, uh, a company, a very controversial company named Clearview AI has been fined in the UK for illegally storing facial images. Why is it that Clearview entered the news in the first place, Natasha? Remind us. Clearview AI entered the news in one of the first in the first place is kind of one of the first tech startup companies that both effectively gathered thousands and thousands of images um, using AI and was also willing to just go out and court clients and and sell that capability before it had been the province of law schools and the province of criminologists to sort of debate what if we could, you know, take a photo of someone on the street and then trace that to exactly who they were. Um, whereas this Australian founder, Hoan Ton Tat, actually did it and built it quite effectively and had zero qualms about offering it as a service to whoever would pay for it. And it ended up, Cam, with uh, a lot of law enforcement agencies, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It was pretty widely used in the US. And and like, you know, in the US, they don't have like the same state-based uh, police forces that we have. You know, they've got all these like tiny police forces who have this like incredible technology that they were just using to like, you know, track down jaywalking or something like that. Um, but also, you know, in, in Australia as well, I believe that a number of police forces trialled it here. Yeah. So what exactly have they been fined for? Like, what is it that they did that was regarded as illegal, Natasha? So they've been fined for breaching four limbs, I guess, of British policy around data use. One is that they've been using information in a way that isn't fair and transparent. One is that they didn't have a lawful reason for collecting people's information. Um, one is that they like didn't have a process to stop the data from being retained indefinitely. So it was like, ah, you're gathering this data, but you know, are you deleting it after a year? Like, what's the story here, guys? And the fourth was that they needed to meet a higher data protection standard for biometric data specifically. Biometric data is considered like of a higher level of sensitivity. So that's things like our fingerprints, that's things like our faces, um, things like our DNA versus where you live or, you know, where I don't know what your dog's name is, is Mm -hmm. considered like a lower level of data in terms of the need for regulatory protection. And yet somehow my anxiety remains the same. So (laughs) uh, Clearview no longer does business in the UK uh, in light of all of this, but undoubtedly there are services around the world that still have access to their 20 billion images. (laughs) Uh, Do we have a sense... Any transparency at all of who uses this stuff and, and what do they use it actually for? Like, well, what are the different practical ways in which this, um, 
I'm going to call it database of terror, is being employed. <laughs> I think that's a pretty fair way of putting it. Um, I mean, it, it's used by all kinds of people. The Queerview AI really likes to spruik, you know, it being used by law enforcement because that seems, you know, maybe a bit more right. Uh, they've said, I think they've given it to free to Ukraine so that they can kind of track down, you know, which Russian soldiers have been in there and attack them and that kind of stuff. But we also know it is, of course, used by corporations doing all kinds of things. So like, you know, Walmart, I believe, was a big user. And the, one of the like issues with, um, you know, companies having access to this technology is that although, it, like I said before, it works really well, like it was able to track down my face. It also tracked down a bunch of like false positives, like people who aren't me, I promise, um, who it then said were me. And the issue is that, you know, it might get a lot right, but also might get some wrong as well. And when you've got, you know, everyone from law enforcement basing, you know, arrest decisions on this all the way to, you know, Walmart banning people from stores or like Ukraine, you know, retaliating against Russian uh, soldiers for it. Um, the fact that it is imprecise and that it's this kind of black box of um, technology, we don't know how accurate it is, presents a real issue. I just love that somewhere there's another six foot uh, hipster with clear glasses <laughs> who's committed a crime somewhere that Cla- Ca- Cam is claiming deniability on here on national radio. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I think the false positive issue is such a good thing to raise because we can get into this thing where like we want to outsource some of our decision making to technology or outsource some of our reasoning and like whether that's in a courtroom or in our own lives, um, there can be issues where why technology is not like God. It's not like, you know, it doesn't divinate from sources other than the human brains that actually created it in the first place. And it also reflects, um, as has been talked about many, many times, it also reflects our own biases and the way in which it's been programmed and, and the way in which uh, it, it, it separates faces and things like that. Predictive technology often can reinforce statistical biases in the past around crime rates. There's all, all these different areas in which technology is not some independent tool from us. It is us. It is an expression of us and all of the good and bad things that come with that. And sometimes it feeds back into that as well, Cam. Yeah. And like, you know, a great example with facial recognition is that a lot of the studies were done on white people, Caucasian people. And so they get a lot more false positives for people of colour. And, you know, particularly when you've got law enforcement agencies using this who already have a problem with with race and racial policing, you know, making it, uh, you know, when, for instance, they identify someone, a person of colour, they're more likely, if they use this technology, to get it wrong. So it all feeds into it. Yeah, I mean, not even law enforcement. Facebook can't tell my face from my brother's face apart. I constantly get tagged in these pictures. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Staying on the fun and exciting topic of fines, 150 million US dollars. That is how much Twitter must pay in the US. But why, Cam? They were using data that they weren't supposed to be using to sell ads. What so, a common theme yeah, of today's show. I know. Fascinating. It's almost like there's a bit of overreach yeah, built into the tech industry. A problem there. Yeah. So Twitter was using things like phone numbers and email addresses that it hadn't indicated that it was going to use to personalize ads as they do on In their In fact, side. it had explicitly indicated that it was going to use your email address and phone number as backup for security in mm. case you locked the account. So it was, you know, one step further um, than not saying and saying something completely different. That feels like a $150 million mistake to me. Indeed. And I think Facebook has made the exact same problem. I'm pretty sure that they didn't get fined for it, but they got a kind of order from the US... Uh, equivalent where they were, you know, again, they were trying to get people to use two-factor authentication. They're like, we need it for security. And then they also went, ha we'll also use it to personalise ads as well. So it's a pretty common mistake. 
This is a weird one because, you know, we often talk about two-factor authentication, which uh, for people that, that don't know is, is you, you know, you log on with your email address, but also you, you give them your, your phone number as well so that if something goes wrong with your email address or if they, they want to send you a code to confirm it's definitely you'd log in. Like, it is a useful tool. It is, an, I've, you know, I've, I've discovered that things have been hacked through two-factor authentication, right? But then there's, if, if stuff like this comes out and people feel like they can't trust the organization with their phone number, even it actually ends up having quite a detrimental effect on like that baseline level of security because two-factor authentication, it's hard to say 50 times fast, two-factor authentication is it becomes good. kind of useless, like not just for Twitter, but for all the other, you know, tech companies, um, big and small that have kind of acted in lockstep, right? And they've been like, oh, that's a good way of doing it. Why don't we add mm. two-factor authentication? And then if it decimates that as a process, um, there's this massive flow-on effect Um beyond Twitter. It should also be said with the Twitter thing, like this fine wasn't just off the back of discovery. It was off the back of a court order that was already in place where Twitter had promised to not sell personal information to advertisers. So this was at the end of like a lengthy process of negotiation and back and forth between what Twitter could do, what the FTC and Department of Justice were saying they could do. Um, So as much as like the fine amount sounds like a crazy sort of number. You have to take that in context with the revenue that Twitter actually makes. These are not regular, normal people. These are corporations. But, you know, it was at the end of a long line, basically. Is there any explanation that's come from Twitter as to how this happened? Are they pleading accident or what have they what have they spoken about it? Uh, I didn't see if they did, but, like, I, I, I have a feeling that, like, you know, things like this can end up happening because, you know, with these big companies who are trying to figure out, you know, they've got all the different arms, someone's doing the security, the other one's doing the advertising, and then, you know, someone in the advertising being like, how can we get more information has just, like, reached over into that pot of data. Um, that being said, like, you know, that sounds like I'm, you know, get, cutting them some slack. But at the end of the day, like, you know, this data, there there's a lot of regulation around it, but also there's a lot of expectations from users that you, you treat it carefully that you you know that is what they deal in and the fact that they make this mistake again like mistake in inverted commas i guess we'll give them the benefit of the doubt there and other companies make it is like a real violation of trust what would a, a good policy be out of this is there is there something that twitter can do that would return faith in the broader world of two-factor authentication for you yeah totally so i mean i think there's lots that twitter can and should do and we don't want to get kind of defeatist about the ability for there to be standards in the advertising industry. I think it should stop using the phone numbers and email addresses that it illegally collected like immediately. Like it would just need to stop that. I know we were assuming that that would happen with the fine, but let's not make assumptions given how they've behaved in the past. So I'd stop that immediately. Um, And then I think Twitter should come up with what it will and won't give advertisers. Advertisers will push and push and push for ways to target people in new and innovative and crazy ways, but there needs to be lines and barriers and boundaries that Twitter as a company won't cross in its relationship with advertisers. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Dyson is an engineering company probably most famous for, I want to say, their vacuum cleaners and their obscenely expensive hairdryer. And now they are branching into the world of robots. What exactly have they said they want to do, Natasha? So, Jason, yeah, as you said, we've already got the vacuum cleaner. They're like, these robots could be doing more than just vacuuming. We could be picking up stuff. We could be moving it over here with the robot instead of ourselves. Guys, I'm seeing it. 
and that's the vision. So I think they've hired like 200, not not freshly hired, but I think they have around 250 people in their robotics division, um, which seems like a lot of brain power to me, um, working on this and other Dyson innovations. So the reason I want to talk about this is not because <laughs> I want to give a free kick to Dyson and they're obscenely expensive objects. It's because robots in the home is something that feels has been coming for a long time. Lots of people have those cleaning robots. But what do you actually want in your house? Like, what are the things that would actually be useful? Because I think the sense of it is not, I think the sense I have is that it's not going away as a product category. Um, The fact that Dyson is putting, uh, let's say, conservatively, $11 million into it would suggest that they think there's something in it. But what do you actually want, Cam? Like, what kind of robot do you want in your house? I mean, what I specifically want is I always really struggle um, with dealing with like sheets and folding sheets because it's like a two-person task. So like a robot would really help me in that. Um, but I, I think like, you know, beyond myself as a very like able uh, person is like, you know, these can have incredible benefits for people who have mobility issues. And so, you know, the things that they were talking about like you know picking up um object like putting away um objects and they use like they were talking about i watched a video about it where they've got like um they use like heat vision to see where people are and also they use um some other uh, ability to see what what shape objects are and to move them it could be incredibly like useful for things that you and i can do like all the time easily and take for granted but people with restricted mobility won't be able to do i think that's like that's where it can have that real benefit I think if you're Kendall Jenner, you would love a robot to chop your cucumber for you. <laughs> you might need to explain <laughs> that. So there was, a, there was she. What is it? She posted something on social media where she just didn't know what she was doing. Oh, it was in a recent episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and Kendall was debuting her cucumber chop, which made it very clear that she's never made a meal for herself <laughs> in her life. Um, but I think with the cleaning thing, I mean is the first thing that people outsource. And, you know, in generations gone by, people have worked out that we can kind of, we can outsource it to women, people outsource it to immigrant labor. Like it's not nice to talk about the ways that less desirable tasks are assigned to different groups, but it's the reality. So it's it being like, how can we get robots to do this is so part of like a conversation that has always kind of existed in that. I think like cleaning and household tasks are not the most fun things to do. Um, so I'm kind of, no, I think, I think you're probably true. I, th- I guess the thing that I, I'm mindful of is like, there's been this sort of two speed sort of, um, development in terms of like the mechanizing or the robotizing, not a word, but let's go with it of the house. Right. So on the one hand, you've got houses becoming smarter. So you've got smart lights and you've got sound systems that are coordinated across the house and, and the house, the infrastructure of, of houses and abodes themselves have become more automated. But then there's like this additional space of kind of <laughs> small, weird looking, uh, canine style robots floating around the house, vacuuming things up. And I guess what I'm trying to locate is like, what's the gap between the two? Are there things that go on in a house or a home or an apartment that don't, that, that don't exist on either side of those bound that, that we really could be improved with a robot. The interesting thing about how Dyson is doing this is that they're really talking about, um, it appears they've got like a quite a long vision in terms of like how long it's going to take to have these actually um, 
like you know get manufactured and come to come to market and but what was kind of interesting that they were talking about was that some of their like you know stretch goals you know these ideas of these crazy robots that are in your house the, the advances that they have there can actually help some of their technologies now so for example that kind of heat radar thing that I was talking about before that um, that like you know their Roombas or whatever would use to know when people in the room they've then started to incorporate into like their thermostats which they have now so already they can be like well moderate you know the temperature based on how many people there are in the room so for them I think it's like you know we've got to have this vision and do something exciting but in the time that it takes to get there we'll also see um, you know new breakthroughs that'll help us with the stuff that we're already doing I guess outside of those two things probably like health technology embedded in the house in different ways um, so whether that's things to help your sleep or track mood I you know, there's always going to be ethical conundrums, but I think that makes sense. You know, that seems to be like a little gap there. There's like cleaning on the one hand, there's like restocking your refrigerator on the other. And then there's probably this like inner middle space of how can we make the inhabitants of the house healthier, safer. Um, have the, have Dyson given any indication of what they intend to do with their 250 new robotics engineers? I think they were even talking that they're saying this is the start of, like they already have hired this many engineers, but they want to hire more. And they, they, they were trying to keep it like very hush-hush, but at the same time be exciting, which is a bit of an awkward balance to have. <laughs> um, but they were talking about, I think this was partly a real call out to get more engineers on board. And as we know, like, you know, in tech at the moment, one of the biggest things is being able to get quality people to come and do work for you. And I guess the first step is that they having them even know that you're kind of doing that work and wanting to hire them. Natasha, Dyson is kind of an interesting company in the sense that they sort of began with much more manufacturing focus and they've had a few different attempts at a few different things. Um, they, had an they had an electric car project that they abandoned. What is the future for a company like Dyson who have, you know, this sort of handful of products that become like really very well known? What, what's kind of the future for a company like that if you had to kind of plan it out? Yes. Um... If I was in a Dyson situation, I think like beauty is a huge category and at home beauty that's growing and expanding. Like we saw like, you know, with people getting Zoom, more people buying ring lights, more people being aware of their face. So I would be kind of like, how would you make ring light 2.0? How, how, what, what, what does the Dyson ring light look like? What does, what does these little beauty accoutrements look like from a Dyson perspective? Because I think right now in the beauty space, and I'm not an expert in this space, I just think it's really, really fascinating. There's kind of like drugstore cheap, you go to Kmart and you get that version of the thing, or there's like elite level Real Housewives of Beverly Hills style <laughs> technology. And so while Dyson is definitely on the elite end of the spectrum, they still always have this sort of like, we're accessible. Like if you really, 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 really want this hairdryer or want this vacuum cleaner, um, it's not completely out of reach for, for a lot of people. So I think the beauty space would be really interesting. That is very interesting, Cam. We know that they, uh, they've abandoned their electric car project, but are there, are, there are there other areas in which a company like Dyson could do well? Yeah, they had that interesting project of the kind of mask thing to, to, that would um, air purify that essentially you could, you, could, you could wear. And I think heading in that direction, unfortunately, the world that we're in is becoming like less hospitable to us, uh, which is really bad for all of us, but a great opportunity for a company, like, you know, being able to do more to make those, I guess, you know, more more normalized and I think that as it stands it looks pretty weird maybe we'll get used to it or maybe the form factor will change that I think will be something that would be unfortunately thinking about a lot more 
And then there's the robots. And with that, uh, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Cam Wilson from Crikey. Thank you so much for being back on Download This Show. Thanks. Good to be back here in the flesh. And Natasha Gillazo, uh, Product Manager with Flux. Thanks for coming back on Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. If you enjoy the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse. And with that, my name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 